Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on The Kids Are All Right, the new film by Lisa Charladinko. And joining me from the Slate office in Washington, D.C. is Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan. Hi, Dana. Who is a sometime critic for Village Voice, Washington Post, True Slant. Where else are you writing for these days, Dan? Honestly, whoever will pay me money. <laughs> yeah, you're just out there on the street yeah. corner waving I'm a, a pen I'm a and paper. Writing, I'm a writing mercenary. Out for hire to the highest bidder. Well, today we've got you, which is very, very nice. And we actually uh, c- convoked this emergency spoiler. We weren't going to spoil this movie. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know if you'd seen it, but we both liked it so much and we're so sure that it's going to be a runaway sleeper summer hit that we decided that we must spoil. So to the studio. Um, and yeah, so take it away. Do you want to do some, some plot summary and we'll get into the spoilage? Sure. Um, uh, the, uh, the Kids Are All Right is the third film from Lisa Chalanenko, who previously directed High Art and Laurel Canyon. Um, and it's the story of uh, a family, of a, of a not really all that uncommon family, although I think obviously to some minds there might be things that are weird about it. But it's a, a pair of lesbian parents, longtime partners, um, played by Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, And their two children who were conceived uh, via sperm donor um, – one born to one mother, one born to the other. Uh, and they're now teenagers. One's just the old, their older daughter, played by Mia Wasikowska. Is that how you pronounce Was- her name? Wasikowska, I think. Wasikowska. Waska, um, I think you're having an extra K in there. I think it's Wasikowska. Played by Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> right. Um, is, has just graduated from high school, and their um, younger son is in high school. Um, and uh, together, their two children hatch a plan without the, the mom's knowledge. Uh, to find the sperm donor who provided, uh, who was both of theirs' father. Which is extremely um, easy in this movie. I wonder, I would be curious with stories of people who've done this in real life, if most people had it that easy. They make it look like they basically just called the sperm bank and got the number and called the guy. Uh, it's. I mean, I feel like as long as you go through a reputable sperm donor, which the lifestyle of their two momses suggests they certainly would have done, um, I don't know that there's any reason it should be so hard. I mean, as long as you're 18, as... Um, as uh, the daughter is, and as long as the donor did not sign any paperwork saying, I absolutely do, want, do not want my name revealed under any circumstances, it, I think it maybe could be that easy. Um, so they find him, and he's sort of a, a, an, a Lothario hippie man of the land slash restaurant owner um, in, the, in L.A. where this movie is set, um, who uh, played by Mark Ruffalo. As you note in your review, wonderfully, um, he's just he's just ruffaloing around in this movie. That's right. If you like your ruffalo, there's just a hearty dose of classic ruffalo in this movie. Right. Um, it's really it's like a ruffalo stampede. Um, <laughs> that was that was poor, very poor. Thank you, thank you. Um, and he uh, in the beginning is delighted to meet his new children. I mean, sort of weirded out, and and it, it's clear that the that the possible consequences of sperm donation never really dawned on him. Um, uh, but he's happy to meet them and happy to bond with them. But, of course, the introduction of Mark Ruffalo into this uh, very comfortable, if sometimes tense, nuclear family um, introduces a, a foreign element that makes everything go a little bit haywire. And the movie is the story of what happens when everyone suddenly is, has this new thing coming into their life just at this, at this moment of, of, of the family being on the cusp of change. And so, right. So up to there, that's that's what we could actually say in a review, right? So things right. start to change when he enters into the family. But since this is a spoiler and not a review, and by the way, let's throw in our spo- spoiler warning here. Don't listen any further if you don't want to hear what happens in the movie, because that's what right. we're about. 
Um, so, so one of the complications that occurs is that Julianne Moore's character, Jules, starts to, who's sort of an aspiring landscape gardener, although she hasn't really gotten it together to start her business yet. Uh, we she should also mention. Go ahead. Yeah, she, she, I'm sorry. She seems to be an aspiring landscape gardener, but really actually kind of an accomplished fuck up. Right. Yeah. And that's gotten across, I think, really, really well and really subtly in the movie. I mean, there's not any moment where, you know, we see a flashback of her, her last 20 years raising these kids or whatever. But you sort of get the sense that she's been, you know, she's she's sort of trying to start this business because the kids are growing up and starting to move out of the house. Her partner, Annette Benning, is the successful doctor. I think she's supposed to be an OBGYN based on the yes. little glimpse that you get of her job. And you, you see that she's sort of, you know, she's the breadwinner and the one who's got it together and that she sort of lords that over her partner a little bit too. So Julianne Moore has this uh, aspiring landscape design business and she agrees to landscape Mark Ruffalo's yard, which Nick, the Annette Benning character, is not happy about at all. And in the process of landscaping his yard, she begins this affair, completely unexpectedly to me, I hadn't seen any previews or anything, that you know she suddenly starts this straight affair with this somewhat younger man. Right, and... and you know, part of the dynamic between the two, between Nick and Jules, has been from the beginning that Nick is a lot more uh, suspicious of of the father's reentry into their kid's life. Um, and uh, Jules has been a little bit more welcoming from the beginning, partially because she does seem a little bit at sea. And, and the opportunity that he presents her to, to work on her garden, though she's a little nervous about it, is... is uh, an opportunity that she certainly feels she needs to sort of make something out of this new stage of her life. Um, and so it's a betrayal in a couple of ways. I mean, when she begins sleeping with him, obviously it's a betrayal of their marriage, I mean, of their relationship, but also it's a betrayal in that she's um, cementing a relationship with this guy, that with this guy, Paul, that, that Nick already doesn't trust and already feels concerned about his entry into that family unit. And so the, and so in a number of wonderful twists that the movie takes, there's – after this affair has been going on for a little while and Jules and Paul don't really know exactly what to do with it and Paul's really starting to fall for her, um, there's a, a dinner, a celebratory dinner um, in – in which Nick really attempts to make her peace with Paul. Um, and in fact, they bond during this dinner over uh, their love of Joni Mitchell, um, which leads to really a truly wonderful scene. And, and uh, I guess I would have to say probably the centerpiece of the movie, um, which is Annette Benning as Nick singing. Uh, what song is it? It's All I Want. It's the first song off the album, Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, Which she finds in, in his record collection, and they start talking about it. Right, and they bond over Joni and how much they love Joni, and it's it's clear that— uh, Oh, and they've named their daughter after Joni Mitchell, right? Right, right. Mia Wasikowska's character is named Joni. Um, and so Annette, in the middle of a, a sort of wine-soaked uh, dinner, um, just starts singing Joni. And, uh, and, and as you note in your review, it starts out as embarrassing and, and then becomes sort of transporting uh, as— as her children see a sort of a glimpse of the younger woman who their mom, one of their moms once was. And as we see, um, because we know that this situation cannot remain as it is forever, we see maybe the last glimpse of her before she realizes the betrayal that her, that her uh, partner has put her through. Yeah, that's a really, really masterful scene in so many ways, the, the acapella Joni Mitchell singing scene, because it starts off and you think you know what kind of scene it is. I mean, I, I can't think of any other examples right now, but there's plenty of movies in which a tipsy person 
busts into an acapella rendition of something and embarrasses a social occasion with it, right? Can you right. think of any off, off, off cuff? I can't really think of any. I mean, I assume that I mean, basically every movie that Will Ferrell's ever been in. Right. That's, um, that's true. It's usually a guy, right? It's usually right. a guy for one thing. But you, but right. you, so you think that what the scene is going to be about is sort of, oh no, she's embarrassing herself and how is she going to be saved from embarrassing herself? But then she kind of keeps going through it and you see actually the strength of her character and the fact that she sort of knows she's embarrassing herself and, and doesn't care. And it's the first time she's reaching out to this guy, you know, the father of her children that she's been cutting off this whole time and the two of them bond through this song but then it goes on a little bit too long and it starts to be uncomfortable again it's just it's just really terrifically handled by both the director and by Annette Benning, who I think in a movie that's uniformly strong cast I think Annette Benning is the standout would you agree I would also I mean everyone in this cast is really pretty fantastic but yes this is the kind of performance I mean Annette Benning isn't in that many movies anymore anyways but um, certainly this is the kind of performance that you've known all along she had in her and it's um and it's earthy and really funny and 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 really very heartfelt and it's a and she's the center of this family obviously i mean she's the breadwinner of the family and she's um sort of the brittle heart of it and it's and one of the things i really loved about her performance and about that scene is the, is the way it serves as a microcosm for what is right and wrong with this family in general which is that they're a family of real overcommunicators you know it's a family in which no um no hurt or slight can be left untouched or unaddressed and in which nothing is out of bounds for discussion no matter how uncomfortable it makes their children or each other um there's a great scene when the the moms get convinced that their um uh that their son uh, is gay, and so they try and have a sit down with him about it. And he may or may not be gay, but he certainly doesn't want to talk about it right now. And uh, but they push onwards and through, and everything is like that in this family. And so when one secret starts being held, uh, I mean the the huge secret of Jules and Paul's relationship, um, watching the effects that it has on this family is pretty amazing, and it's pretty amazingly handled on a scene-to-scene basis um, by Lisa Cholodenko. Right, and that, that style that you talk about, that kind of touchy-feely L.A. relationship style that this family mm-hmm. has, is satirized by the movie in a great way. Like, I, It's really rare and really great to come across a movie that does gentle social satire, that does effective social satire that's not cruel toward the characters, and right. I can't think it's of not... very many directors that do it. It's like Richard Linklater can do it, and, and Eric Romer could do it, you know, and once in a while... I'm trying to think who else will, will be able to pull it off. Whit Stillman could do it, and Lisa right. Chaladinko can do it. She manages to, to capture this whole kind of absurd world of these affluent, um, you know, in touch with their feelings, sort of organic food L.A. types who are nonetheless extremely unhappy and not very good at relating to one another, and to sort of satirize them while being very loving toward them. And it's, it's just a, a ter- terrific trick to pull off. Right. You, she doesn't make you hate them. And, uh, you know, and these could be in the hands of a much meaner director or really a, a, even a slightly meaner director. These characters could be really hateful. But can but, I predict something? I actually predict that there's going to be a backlash against this movie. It's opening today. It's it's had a huge wave of critical love. I think it's something like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that actually because of the social class question, not even so much because of the alternative family structure, but because of the bougie nature of the world the, the, the world that it paints this portrait of, that there's going to be a snarky backlash against it in the next couple of weeks. The way there was against Sideways, it actually kind of reminds me of Sideways in some ways, which I love. I think Sideways is a terrific movie. And I remember mm-hmm. that a few weeks after the wave of love for Sideways, there were all these people saying, why should we care about these, you know, after 
affluent Californians in their tour of the wine country. Essentially, basically, these people's problems aren't interesting because they have too much money. And I can see there being some sort of snark like that about this movie. Do you do you see that happening? I definitely see it happening. But it's it's interesting that you would compare it sideways because I, I would I mean I would place Lisa Cholenko and Alexander Payne at almost exact opposite ends of the empathy spectrum for their characters. I mean, I, there's never been an Alexander Payne movie where I felt like he had n- nearly the level of affection for his characters that Lisa Cholodenko obviously Well, okay, here. yeah, he's a meaner he's a meaner satirist, I think, but I do see a, a gentle edge to his social satire, especially in Sideways. I think that's one of his, you know, one of his least cruel movies. You're right that he's got a little bit more of, of a knife's edge than Lisa mm-hmm. Cholodenko, but he's not like a Cohen brother or somebody who's just like yes. waiting in the wings to come out and stab you. That's true. And and I do I agree with you that I think that there will be some level of backlash against this movie, but it but I think that it might be minimal only because this movie is so I mean is so really unbelievably lovable and it's hard for me to imagine people walking out of this movie at least not in the beginning feeling real affection for these characters no matter what their you know bougie social status is and no matter how organic their garden is uh and um and no matter how you know earthy and sexy Mark Ruffalo is like there I feel like there's so much affection in this movie for these characters that it it has to transport most viewers, right? Won't most people walk out of this movie feeling like they love these guys? But maybe some people don't want to feel that love. I'm, I, all I can say is that when I read my first snarky backlash review and or blog post about this, I'm going to be emailing you triumphantly right. about it. I had right, one, right. as long as we're spoiling and, and talking about you know the movie's love for its characters, I wanted to talk about the fate of the Mark Ruffalo character, the last time we see him and the implication. I mean, just to do some of that ridiculous supposition about what would happen if the movie continued after the movie was over. Sure, sure. Do you think that... Okay, well, so the last time we see Mark Ruffalo, he's basically been shut out of the family, right, when the affair is discovered. Nick is completely furious. She bars him from the kids' lives. And the kids actually are furious, too, and bar him from their own lives. And there's a moment that they're all... The, uh, the nuclear family is sitting having dinner, sort of starting to patch up this, this horrible thing that's ripped their lives open, and he on appears the, at the on, door. On, yeah, it's on the last night before. Um, oh, right. Before the eve of her Joni's going to going college. To college right? right. And so it's like their last family dinner. Um, and there's a very, I mean, there's tension in the air, but there is peace sort of at last. Um, and into this peaceful last dinner comes um, Mark Ruffalo, comes Paul. Um, trying to make things right, trying on. I mean, fairly honestly, you certainly seem to get thing, to make things right. He obviously he feels terrible about what he's done. He really has surprised himself with how much his relationship with Joni and Laser, the two kids, has meant to him. And so he's trying to make amends, but at the same time, he's making amends really at the absolute worst possible moment he could. It's much too soon. It's Joni's last night at home. Uh, no one's ready for him to be there, and so uh, he shows up on the front porch. And uh, I think it's Joni answers the door, right? Yeah, she's the first one to. Right. And um, and he stammers out a few apologies and she gives him the cold shoulder and and Nick and Jules send him away. And so the last we see of him is through the window, right? Just sort of looking sadly in at the family. Right. And the last thing that Nick and Ed Benning's character says to him is really cold. She just says something about get your own fucking family or something and basically slams the door in his face. And the last we see of him is, you know, just looking like a sad little fluffy Ruffalo puppy standing on the steps. Mm-hmm. And I really mm-hmm. felt for him at that moment. And I, and I just couldn't 
decide to what extent the movie agreed with Nick and thought, you know, this guy really needs to stay the hell away. And there's a little bit of a tentative possibility in um, the young girl and Joni's interaction with him that they might see each other. He says, well, can I ever be part of your life again? She says, I don't know. And it's sort of left hanging there. And at the end of the movie, I, I mean, we can also spoil what happens at the very end of the movie, but I, I couldn't help but wish that Mark Ruffalo in The Kids Are All Right too would get to come back and be some part of the kids' lives. Because for, all of, his, for all, right all of his too. fucking up, he did seem like kind of a great character and, and kind of a cool spoon donor dad to have yeah well yeah and the kids are all right too the college years i imagine he heads over to stanford and does become part of of joni's life again i i've viewed the movie as i mean part of what the movie is about at least that last act of the movie is people finding ways to forgive each other for unforgivable things right and so i mean the movie ends with uh certainly a level of of reproachment and peace between um jules and nick uh, as they drop Joni off at college. Um, and, uh, and a scene, may I, may I point out, the second movie this summer to make me cry in a scene in which a kid is leaving for college after Toy yeah. Story 3. Guy, and you've got, what, like 12 years to go before that actually happens? <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be you practicing. you got a lot of crying ahead of you, Dana. Yeah, but there's just a, there's a really wonderful single shot where both the moms hug the daughter at the same time. And we kind of know that everything that's gone into this moment and what a hard last few months they've had. But th- that moment really transcends the story of this movie. It's sort of just any two parents saying goodbye to their kid as they as they go away for the first time to begin their adult life. And I was just right. overwhelmed. I thought it was just <laughs> so crushing. Right. Um, but and so in general, to me, the the overarching almost I mean, the emotional aesthetic of this movie is one of forgiveness for the unforgivable and so to my mind this was not this is certainly not the last time that paul is going to be in their lives and i I think that the idea i got was that there was a messy future ahead of them but that he was part of that future right is that nick would gently ease the pedal off her anger and the kids would ease the pedal off theirs and that as as hard as it may be they would find a way to include him because for that very reason because i think in the end they all see that for all his fuck-ups, he's as nice a guy as they are. You know, he's no more fucked up than Jules is. And they're fucked up in similar ways and that there's a place for him in their lives. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. You What you mentioned about that last scene and how it sort of transcends the movie and how it could be any two parents reminds me that, I mean, through this basically this whole entire conversation, we've made no really specific references at all to the fact that it's a lesbian couple raising these kids and 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 so the universality the universality of the story is commendable and interesting but do you think that people will um get on this movie for, simply for it not being political enough for it not taking a stand really in any way or do you view that as one of the movie's strengths i don't know i'm curious to see which way that goes and it, it is true it is odd that we have barely mentioned the fact that it's two women bringing up kids i mean i think that that is for me an argument in favor of the movie and that it's not a social issues movie i think it's a movie right. that you walk out of thinking about these characters in this family and not gee what does it mean to be a donor child or to be brought up by two moms although that, that does come up explicitly at several points in the movie and at one point Joni, when she's drunk and angry at her moms accuses them of trying to bring her up as the perfect overachieving you know trophy child so that they can prove that gay parenting works or something like that. Right, so, right. I mean, I think that if you did grow up in an alternative structured family, you you might be extra involved and extra interested in this movie. But I think people who think that they don't want to go to it because they're not interested in a, a preachy movie about alternative families should really go ahead and buy their ticket. Right. Because there's, I mean, there's zero preaching in this movie. I mean, other than if the anything, fact that- in fact, I think the people that might be most offended by it, and maybe this is what you were, you were pointing at a second ago, might be, you know, um, activist 
gay families who feel like, wait a minute, we want a positive portrait to be drawn. You know, this isn't such a positive portrait of a family, gay or otherwise. It's, as you say, a pretty messed up family. It's also not particularly preachy in terms of, you know, um, uh, uh, homosexual relationships because there's a heterosexual relationship in the middle of it, right? I mean, people might be upset by the fact that this woman has an affair with a straight guy. Right. Well, I mean, as with, I mean, as with all of Lisa Cholonenko's movies, this is a movie that, among other things, is about the fluidity of, of... desire and uh, and about how people are attracted to the people they are attracted to, not necessarily to men or women uh, all at once or all all to the exception of the other. That's true. Um, all her movies do have that in common. I think this is yeah. the best of her movies by far, if only for the simple reason that everybody, every, every actor in this movie is really good. And I think both of her first two <laughs> movies have, have a weak spot in a major character who's played by an uninteresting actor, Rada Mitchell in the first one and uh, Kate mm-hmm. Beckinsale in the second. But that's a whole other spoiler. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, the, we were talking about this a little before we started recording that, um, I mean, one thing that Lisa Chilodenko does really well and that we haven't really touched on at all in this discussion uh, is sex scenes. Um, and... I noticed in in this movie, and I mean the sex scenes are extremely sexy in this movie. It's I mean it's I think Julianne Moore is incapable of being unsexy, as is probably Mark Ruffalo. Um, but the scenes are also played for comedy in a lot of ways. I mean they they have smash cuts for for the purposes of comedy. Um, there, uh, Julianne Moore is extremely uninhibited uh, in in I mean in, in her comedic physicality in those sex scenes. Uh, which to me is like sort of the way you can tell that Lisa Chilodenko has made like a straight comedy. Um, aside from a, a happy ending or the jokes or whatever, you know it because her sex scenes are funny instead of like super serious the way You're they right. have And the movie actually movies. opens on a funny sex scene between between the two women, which is just basically a sort of parody of married sex where neither two person can neither of the two people can really get into it because they've had right. sex too many times. Right. So they're watching this male gay porn movie to try to get into it and their kids over here. It's just this kind of ridiculous sex farce scene that, that opens the movie that kind of loosens up the viewer from from step one. Right. Um, so overall, yes, I agree with you. This is Lisa Cholodenko's best movie. I mean, I also think it's one of the best movies of the year so far. I mean, it's extremely funny and heartfelt. And and though obviously this is a fucked up family, they're an extremely recognizably fucked up family and one that at the end I felt really a great deal of affection for. Um, and I guess in a way, I mean, for those looking f- – for those who are worried that this movie does not make enough of a statement, I mean, obviously – Making a movie about uh, a, a totally dysfunctional yet totally lovable and in the end totally recognizable gay family uh, is it's still in these di- in these days in Hollywood is still a bit of a political statement uh, and and I mean from that standpoint the movie certainly is not apolitical it just does it just isn't preachy in a way that I think people might be worried about. All right. Well, Dan, it's nice to, to have a rave, right? It's nice to spoil a movie that we both just pretty much unreservedly loved for a change. I know. Right? I know. I guess we did have Toy Story 3 recently, so we've had a couple this summer. It's been a pretty good summer for a movie. I mean, it hasn't been a good summer for summer movies, but it's been a good summer for, for almost everything else. I mean, this is the third movie this summer that I pretty unreservedly loved, and it's nice to have that in the otherwise um, overheated months of blockbusters. Wait, just quickly. What was the one besides Toy Story, Toy Story 3 in this one? Uh, Winter's Bone. Ah, all right. Oh, Winter's Bone. All right, that's another whole conversation. <laughs> that is, that is. We'll get into that at the end of the year. Okay, Dan, thanks a lot for joining me for this late spoiler special. My pleasure. Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.